0: All right. Well, this next next section is entitled uh, "Repeat After Me: Prayer as Confessing God's Truth." Repeat After Me: Prayer as Confessing God's Truth. Now, when we think of the topic of prayer, we often recognize that there are various elements that are fundamental to making. Prayer effective. And so if I were to ask you what is the most essential ingredient for prayer, you'd get, I imagine I'd get several responses, different answers to this question. What is the most essential ingredient for prayer? the most essential ingredient for a healthy prayer life, a sound prayer life, a a biblical prayer life that is going to be pleasing and honoring to the Lord, that will be a prayer life that will be just that which our Father intends for us. Some might say, well, you need a proper environment without distraction. Now, in a practical way, this is a very important ingredient, We could acknowledge that. Environment is important. Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. We see even in his own life that he would go to a certain place that would create the right environment for for a communion with God and certainly we read even in his teachings his command to go into the closet to, to go into privacy and their prayer also pray also so that uh, you would not be putting your righteousness on display in that sense others might say that the essential ingredient for a healthy prayer life the essential ingredient is discipline or determination, that if we are going to have a, a robust practice of prayer, you need that discipline. You need that resolve that you're going to make this happen. You're going to plan it into your schedule. You're going to set the alarm clock, and, and you're going to work your way through that. And certainly, determination and discipline are important as well. Jesus himself said and. Matthew chapter 18 if you look at that parable he taught using the parable of the persistent disciplined determined widow he taught that we must pray and not lose heart so certainly determination and discipline are essential for prayer the question is is that they are those things the most essential for a healthy prayer life Some would say that you need an attitude of faith and expectation that if you are going to uh, cultivate a, a vibrant prayer life and move from being perhaps rare in prayer to being more average and then up into the category of being great in prayer, strong, healthy in prayer, you need this attitude of faith and expectation. And there too we find biblical precedent for that James chapter 1 tells us that in the midst of trials, when we don't know uh, what to pray for uh, when we struggle, James chapter 1 says that we are to pray in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Certainly, if you don't understand who God is... If you have a weak view of his character and his promises, prayer will be difficult and you will suffer from this this skepticism or this lack of trust in your praying and that will certainly inhibit healthy prayer. Another possible ingredient here when we talk about the essential ingredient for prayer would be a spirit of freedom and confidence that this is important for prayer. And if we are to pray well, we must have this liberty. And here, too, the Bible speaks. We read in Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we must draw near with confidence. We must draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of of need uh, environment discipline faith freedom all of these things are essential to prayer and we could have a whole seminar on each one of these aspects and it certainly would be edifying to all of us but i want to point something out as much as these are important ingredients i want to Uh, I want to argue this, this morning that these are not the primary ingredients. And what I mean by primary is that foundational ingredient that makes prayer biblical in nature. All of those other ingredients can be found with even those who might have unbiblical praying. But there is one ingredient that is primary that sets biblical prayer off from unbiblical prayer that sets healthy, sound praying off from that which is weak and misguided. The ingredient that we are talking about here is is essential for a prayer, a healthy prayer life, and it is an ingredient that I will even say is important to add even before the first words of the praying begins. And it is the ingredient of listening. And I want to spend time properly defining this. The ingredient that is primary, the essential ingredient to make prayer biblical in nature is that it be listening. Listening specifically here to what I will say is the speech of God. Listening to the speech of God as it has already been spoken to us in the pages of Scripture. I want to state this right at the beginning, that the, uh, the, when I talk about hearing from God, I'm not talking about neglecting the Bible, what, what he's already spoken, and attempting to try and get new, fresh revelation from God. That's not what I'm speaking of when I talk about listening to God. I, I want to make that very clear. Uh, th- there are whole movements dedicated to this idea of trying to get new revelation from God and believing that that new revelation from God is what is the, the, the secret key to success in living the Christian life or even to success in praying. And so there's all kinds of things that are done and all kinds of claims that are made to try to get this, this special revelation. But I'll be unequivocal and, and I'll be clear on this. God has not left us with a need. He has given us His Word. He has already spoken to us. And He has spoken to us in such a way that what He has said is all we need to live a life of godliness today. He hasn't left anything out. He hasn't left us in the dark. He hasn't left us in in our individual lives in a vacuum or in the absence of truth that we need. And to have a a response that says, well, I need new revelation or fresh revelation from God for me to live a vibrant Christian life is severely misguided and it downplays that precious truth that God has already spoken. So we need to listen. And no other factor than listening to God's speech in his word Will, will be as important as, as this factor, as listening to God in his word. Now, when we talk about listening to God being the primary or essential ingredient to biblical prayer, it reflects what we affirm and assert as the primacy of God in all things the primacy of God in all things. And it's important for us to begin with some good theology about the character of God, who he is. This is, this is essential. This is what makes prayer healthy. It begins with understanding who God is. And God is, we, we call God primary. He is the foundation for all things, including the foundation for praying. And theologians will uh, we'll take this concept of primacy and will define it in three categories. And I want to do this in a simple way. I'll, I'll list some of the, the Latin terms that they use. Don't worry about those. I'll explain them in English. Uh, but we can take the concept of God's primacy, that he is foundational for everything in creation, and we can put it into three categories. The first one is this. God is what is called the principium Ascendi. God is the foundation for existence. God is the foundation for existence. If God didn't exist, neither would we. And even our ongoing existence is possible only because God does exist. He is the one who spoke all things into being, as we heard earlier this morning. He is the one who spoke all things into being by the power of his word and Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and Colossians chapter 1 talks about how God holds all things together every single atom every molecule in creation in the universe he holds it all together by the power of his being he is the foundation for existence we also speak of God as being the foundation For knowing. God is the principium cognoscendi, the foundation for knowing. That the only reason why we can know things is that God knows things. And the only reason that we can know things is that God has revealed those things to us, He has revealed truth to us. In general revelation, he has revealed things to us in the testimony of the world that he has created. His fingerprints are all over it. They're unmistakable. It is his truth. And he has revealed knowledge to us in his special revelation, in his word. And we can know things today. We can talk about being certain in things today, of being confident in things today, in in knowing things today because God has spoken them. We know that Jesus is the Lord. We know that he died on the cross for our sins. We know that he has a, a, a world of paradise, a world of love that awaits us after death. We know those things and are certain in those things, not because we have set up a microscope or a telescope or have searched out these things, but we know those things because God has revealed them to us. God is the foundation of knowing. But then there's a third category. God is the foundation for speaking. He's the foundation for speech. He is the principium lacendi, the foundation for speech, the foundation for communication. We see that even in the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, enjoying for all eternity perfect communion. There's communication that occurs now and has always occurred between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they, are, as, as they commune with one another in perfection. And that serves as the foundation for our communication. It serves as the foundation for God's speaking. He speaks the world into existence. He provides promises, and He does things by the power of His Word. And because He does things by the power of His Word, He is the God of speech. He is the God who created speech in man. It wasn't a product of evolution. God was the first one who spoke to Adam, and Adam then responds to God. God is the one who's given us the gift of communication, but we speak only because God has spoken first. He is the foundation for speaking. And therefore, we recognize that we could not pray to God if he had not first spoken to us. I don't know if you've ever considered that before. Sometimes we're so man-centered, even in our most devout religious practices, that we think we're the ones who are really responsible for praying. But in reality, we could not pray. We would not know how to pray we would, know not, we would not know what to pray, when to pray, if God had not first spoken to us. And without God's special revelation, without this word, I want to make this very clear, without this word, meaningful prayer would be impossible. Certainly, you know, a man on his own can dream up some kind of religious ritual, that you could call prayer in some kind of outward sense, but true meaningful prayer would not be possible if God had not revealed himself to us. We don't often think of that. Uh, once I heard a preacher say this if I, and it was kind of a silly hypothetical, he said, if I had the choice, if I had to be marooned on an island, and all by myself, and I could only take one of two things, either the Bible or prayer, I would just take prayer. And he intended that, and I recognize he was intending that to emphasize the importance of prayer. But he failed. Because prayer is not just about us speaking. Prayer is a response. It is always a response to God's speaking. And healthy prayer will never occur if it is done apart from God's speech to us. Remember that. You might think that just because you're speaking to God, it's the right thing and that's all you need. But for that praying to be done rightly, in a way that glorifies and honors and pleases the Lord, you must first listen. One writer said this, only God is self-sufficient. We are creatures, and every moment we're sustained by him. Even our rebellion against him is only possible because he holds the fabric of the universe together by his powerful word. And even our shouts of defiance against God are only possible with the breath that he gives to us. You know, it's, it's the atheist who says there is no God who is assuming God in being able to speak those words in the first place. He's drawing upon the breath that God gives. He's drawing upon a functioning brain that God gives. He's drawing upon language that only God can create and can give. So in light of this, I want to look at two vital principles for confessing God's truth in prayer. So we have to listen to God and then confess that truth. We have to incorporate what he has said into our praying so that our speaking reflects what he has spoken. So that we truly are listening to him before we speak. It's one of the things that we try to instill in children, right? Before you speak, listen. Especially with respect to when parents are speaking. Before you speak, listen. And it's a very important lesson for us as God's children to learn as well. Before we start speaking, let's listen. And then let's take what God has said and incorporate it into our praying. Here's principle number one. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on principle number one because... We would get into really a, 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 perhaps a lot of other ideas that we'd have to take time to develop, especially in the area of Bible study. We don't have time for that, but I, I think this element is is straightforward, and you recognize it. And it's this principle number one: before we speak to God in prayer, He must speak to us by His Word. Before we speak to God in prayer, He must speak to us by His Word now you might say well every time i open the bible the first thing i do is say god open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your law i'm not talking about that initial request to understand what god has spoken that must always be the case you're essentially saying lord open my ears so i can hear you in in your word open my eyes so i can see what words are from you That is the prayer that we ask as we open our ears, as we direct our our ears, our listening to what God has said. Those prayers must always be there. But what I mean by God speaking first before we pray is that the substance of our praying, the contents of our prayers, the petitions and supplications and adorations and confessions, that those things need to come subsequent to what God has first spoken to us. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 9 says this, He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Let me read that again. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And, and sadly, we have many Christians today who advocate all kinds of things that are contrary to what God has actually said in his word. They pray about things that actually are contrary to God's will in his word, and they do so not necessarily even because they're trying to rebel against God, but they're ignorant of what God has actually said on those topics. Through all their practice, they have really turned their ears away from listening to the law and therefore their prayers are not accepted their prayers are not answered because they have not taken the time to listen first to what god has said god has spoken to us and what he has spoken has been recorded on the pages of the bible that is god's speech to us and it is perfect it is necessary. It is clear. And it is sufficient for what we need to live our lives as his followers today in the circumstances in which we live. It is that necessary word. He's not holding truth back from us that we truly need. He is not holding knowledge back from us which is somehow essential for us to make the choices and decisions that we need to make in our present lives he has given us that which is essential for us in his word and it is the bible therefore as part of his primacy the bible that motivates us to pray it, the bible that instructs us how to pray and it is the bible that determines what we should pray this is part of what it means to confess or to acknowledge the primacy of god in all things to recognize that we are not the ones who go about defining prayer how it seems best to us. We are not the ones who go about defining the Christian life how it seems best to us. Since God is primary, he is foundational to existence, to knowledge, and even to communication and speaking, we acknowledge the fact that he has provided that for us in his word, and it is the Bible that instructs us to pray. It is the Bible that that motivates us to pray, and it's the Bible that determines the content of our prayers. One person with whom you're, you probably are familiar, George Mueller, you know him from his ministry to the orphans in England. He has this little snippet about his own transformation that happened in his own prayer life his own prayer practice it used to be if you'd follow the the larger context here it used to be that he would begin all the time every day with prayer and that sounds very very godly to begin with prayer that's the first thing you just start praying when you get up in the morning but as i've just said principle number 1 is that we must first listen to god and then pray notice this uh, statement out of his uh, diary where he says this, before this time, that is he's speaking of a certain circumstance in his life, before this time my practice had been, at least for 10 years previously, as a habitual thing, to give myself to prayer having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. That thus, my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed. And that thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. I began, therefore, to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning, early in the morning. What what George Mueller is talking about here is this this change, this transition that happened in his life as he came to realize that without first filling his ears with the words of the Lord, he would fill the Lord's ears with words that were somehow disjointed, that there was dissonance between what he would pray and what the Lord sh- would love and desire to hear from us. And it had to do with the fact that, that he had not taken the time first to hear what the Lord had said to him. And so this first principle emphasizes that. We must first be strong in our reading of the word. And it's not unusual when you talk with people who are struggling in their prayers to ask them, well, do you read the Bible? Do you have a a good plan for reading the Bible in a healthy way from from beginning in the chapter 1, verse 1 of a book and reading through the whole thing, reading through the whole book, not just skipping around to texts that you might be familiar with or to turning only to those places in the Bible that you prefer, but reading through the Bible even as it was delivered to us. Do you, do you have a good practice? And often people will say, actually, no, no, I don't. And what can happen today, especially in the culture that we find ourselves today, as postmodern culture, where truth is defined very subjectively, to the extreme even today that you hear people saying, as recently, even this week, in one of the town halls where a presidential candidate said that it was perfectly fine for an eight-year-old to decide what kind of gender they wanted to be. Now, Christians can be like that too, by forgetting about the Bible. Determining prayer and the content of prayer according to what he or she believes is best. I can determine that. I am the one who can, who can determine what content God should hear. But we must recover this, this practice of first being strong in hearing the word of God. Then, principle number two... After we have heard the words of God, as he has given them to us in his word, then we are at a position in which we can pray robustly. And the second principle then is this, this is vital for healthy prayer. We must then confess God's truth back to him in prayer. We must confess God's truth back to him in prayer. So the first principle was, we must first listen to what God has said in his word, what God has said to us. And the second one is this, our prayers must be filled with the confession of truth back to God. That this is a very important element in healthy praying. Let's look at that, that concept of to confess. What does it mean To confess. To confess. When I say we must confess God's truth back to him, what do we mean by to confess? Well, let me define it this way. To confess is to express our agreement with God's revelation of himself and his assessment of us. Let me state that again. When we talk about confessing God's truth back to him in prayer as a healthy, robust, essential part of praying we are talking about expressing our agreement, expressing our agreement with what God has said over two issues in particular. If we summarize it into two categories. We express our agreement with what God has said about himself and his works. And we express our agreement with what God has said about us and our works. But that's really the essence of confession i'm going to go through this in a little bit more detail but when you think of confession and its role in prayer it is foundational to prayer and it is confessing god's truth about himself and about us back to god and that is what glorifies and honors the lord in the new testament in particular you have this greek word homelageo don't worry about that, but that Greek word that's used, hamalogeo, especially in a text like First John chapter one verse nine. If we confess our sins, we often think of confession merely as admitting wrongdoing. That's not the accurate definition of confession. Sometimes you'll hear of prayer that is uh, that is defined by the the acronym ACTS: Adoration, Confession thanksgiving and supplication. A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. And often our minds immediately think that when it says C for confession, that it's all about admitting sin to God and going through the day and reviewing what we've done against God's glory. Now, certainly that is an element of confession, but it's not really the Full definition of what confession really is. When you look at this verb confession, for example, y- you really don't find any negative sense whatsoever in confession. It's not just about wrongdoing. It's used in four different ways in the New Testament. For example, it is used in the sense of committing oneself to do something for someone. That, that You can use the verb to confess that way. We don't use it in our English parlance today that way, but it was used that way in the Greek verb, to commit yourself. But then, notice number two, now it starts to move into the direction that we see it used in terms of the Bible and prayer. To share a common view, or to be of common mind about a matter, to agree or number three, to concede that something is factual or true, to grant or admit that something is true. Or number four, to acknowledge something ordinarily in public that has the idea of public confession. But it doesn't have a necessary, decidedly negative attitude towards it. It comes from the idea of uh, of the concept of homo and logos, The same word, homo and logos, homogenous, for example, the same, logos, word. So what does it mean to confess? To say the same word. That's what it means. And so when we think of prayer in the terms of ACTS, acts, And we think of confession as one of those elements of prayer. It essentially means this, to say the same word. To say the same word as who? That's the issue. To say the same word as our neighbor or someone else in prayer? No, confession is to say the same word as God. And if it is to say the same word as God, it means we must know what God has said. It means we must know the mind of God on this matter. We must know the mind of God on on the matter pertaining to his character and his works, his redemption, his gospel. We must know the word of God as it pertains to who I am in my state, to what I have done in my works, whether good or bad. We must know the word of God. And so prayer then is confession. When we first have listened to what God has stated on these things, and then we say, I'm going to agree with that. And I'm going to confess these things according to how God renders them. Thus, to confess does not mean you're telling God something he does not know. Uh, Sometimes, especially, you know, with little children and they're they're sometimes not uh, seeing all things as they should, but they'll have this idea of confession as admitting to a sin to God and that God really didn't know about it and so they're opening up and telling him what was done in secret and you have to say well no he knew about that (laughs) long before you ever committed it he knew about it when you committed it and he knows all things and uh, always knows all things but it is not confession is not telling God something he doesn't know either about himself or about us and what we've done to confess is to express our acknowledgement of the way things really are as God sees them to confess means that that we acknowledge the way things are according to how God sees them. That's an important part of worship. That is an important part of worship. In fact, I'm going to be looking at a few hymns in just a moment, but one of the aspects of what we do together as a a body, as a church, is confession. And when we sing these songs, understand this, when we sing many of these songs, they are prayers, prayers. And what we are doing is confession. It is corporate confession. And it is not just a confession of sin. Many of these prayers don't even mention our particular sins at all. It's confessing who God is. It's confessing what reality is as God has determined it to be. And that's what we do when we join our hearts and voices together in singing these songs. We're making a confession. We're saying the same things as what God has said confession occurs then, when we are impacted by the message of divine revelation and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as he presses that truth into our understanding, and we we are made to agree with it, we are made to assent to it about who God is, what he does, and who we are, and what what, what we do. And so in essence, to confess means to repeat God's own language. It means to repeat God's own language. Matthew Henry, in a book, uh, A Method for Prayer, and I noticed that you have a book here that is called uh, Directions for Daily Communion with God. Matthew Henry is one of my favorite Puritans on the topic of prayer, and this little book that you have uh, takes a, a citation out of the Psalms that we read already, where David says that uh, we pray. He prayed in the morning and at noon and at uh, at evening, and this. Book is a wonderfully devotional book warm about prayer and how we spend time with God at the beginning and middle of and at the end of every day. Well, Matthew Henry wrote a larger volume that this work is sometimes attached to and it's called a method for prayer. And in that Puritan work, it's a large work, method for prayer, it's prayers from the Bible. And it's, it's filled with instructions and comments about how to use the Bible to impact prayer. And this is what Matthew Henry stated as it pertains to prayer. He said, I would advise that the sacred dialect, the sacred dialect, he's referring to the language of scripture, be most used in prayer and made familiar to us and others in our dealings about sacred things that language Christian people are most accustomed to, most affected with, and most readily agree to. What he's saying is that when it comes to praying, you know what, here is is something we all need to strive to do, to fill it with the Bible's language. That that aspect shows our acknowledgement that what God has said here is the truest of the true. It can't get more true than this. That this Bible, this word defines reality despite what everyone else around us in the world says. This defines reality. And there's no higher thing that we can do than to fill our prayers with the acknowledgement of this truth patrick fairburn in his work on pastoral theology said this the content of prayer quote should be cast much in the mold of scripture and should be marked by a free use of its language now what does bible saturated confession look like then How do we see this, even in the Bible, if we say, okay, we acknowledge the need to fill our prayers with biblical language, with the sacred dialect, what is this going to look like? Well, let me give you a few examples here. In Numbers 14, verses 14 to 17, you have, let me check that, I missed the uh, chapter number there. It's either 14 or 11. It is Matthew, or it is Numbers 11. Uh, math, uh, Numbers 11, 14 to 17. Uh, or maybe I've, I'll have to check that. It is... I, I'm going to have to check that. But here is the text. As someone can maybe find it there in Numbers that quotes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. Here, Moses is interceding for the rebellion of the people. They are being struck down for their disobedience to enter the promised land. And so Moses, as he gets before the Lord and begins to pray, notice what fills his prayer. He says this, but now I pray, Let the power of the Lord be great, just as you, Lord, have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations." pardon I pray the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now do you see what which when is it okay numbers 14, 14 17, through 18. 17 through 18 numbers 14 17 through 18 forgive me for the Lack of proper reference there. But notice what Moses does. Moses is interceding for the people and as he does, what does he do? He incorporates the very words that we find in Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 to 7. The great declaration of God, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Moses incorporates those previous words of revelation that he himself had even written in Exodus and he brings it into his prayer here. That's an example of a Bible-saturated prayer quoting God's own words to him. We find it also in Daniel chapter 9. Here's another example. Daniel chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Here, Daniel is in exile He's in exile, but he has some scrolls, namely scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah. You often don't realize this, but the prophets read each other's writings. They recognized them to be the inspired words of God. And Daniel is there in exile, and he has the words of Jeremiah, which were written decades earlier just as Israel was about to be exiled, Daniel is now exiled as part of the exile from Judah. And he is reading through the scrolls of Jeremiah. But notice what we read in Daniel 9, verses 2 to 3. In the first year of Darius' reign... I, Daniel, observed in the books, in the scrolls, the number of the years which had been revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. And if you know anything about Daniel chapter 9 then, is that it starts then into one of the great prayers of the Old Testament. So how is Daniel motivated to pray? How is he instructed to pray? How does he undergo the practice of praying? Notice where it begins. Notice what is primary here. He begins with the scrolls open before him. And he is impacted particularly by Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 12 and 29 verse 10, where Jeremiah had prophesied of 70 years of captivity. And as Jeremiah ponders over this, that knowledge of what God has said in a promise then is incorporated into Daniel's prayer as he begins to pray back to God his acknowledgement of the truthfulness of these words and that God is a keeper of his promises. You see it in the New Testament as well. A wonderful example in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have been temporarily arrested by the Sadducees, by the Sanhedrin, for preaching Jesus. They have been ordered to stop, and obviously Peter and John are not going to do that, but the Sanhedrin realizes that they can't keep these men in, in chains. They can't keep them incarcerated, and so they let them go. And so Peter and John go back to the gathering of believers, and they, rep- they tell to the believers, the local church there, of what had happened. And notice how the local church responds. This is a great prayer in Acts chapter 4, and I'm citing just part of it here. And when they, they, that is the gathering of those New Testament saints, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And the the prayer then goes on to give praise to God for the deliverance of Peter and John. But notice how this prayer begins with confession. Confession. A confession that is taken right off the pages of Exodus chapter 20 and Psalm 2. Their prayers were saturated with confession of God's own words. One writer said this, I have learned to see the Bible as kindling for a holy fire. Scripture is meant to inform us and thus to inflame us. It is meant to illuminate our thoughts of God and thus ignite our affections for God. And so it's very possible today that one of the reasons why you have suffered in prayer in your prayer life is because you don't know what to pray for. You lack the kindling. It's as if it's this little piece of paper that is ignited for a moment and quickly is consumed and that's it. And what you need is to add kindling to that fire And that kindling is the words of God. And that is fuel. That is the fuel that must serve for our praying. As one person has said, the entire Bible must be our prayer book. Donald Whitney, who has written some works on this, said this, one of the reasons Jesus prohibited the empty repetition of prayers is because that's exactly the way we're prone to pray although i don't merely recite memorized prayers my own tendency is to pray basically the same old things about the same old things and it doesn't take long before this fragments and the atten- before this fragments the attention span and freezes the heart of prayer the problem in our praying about the same old things The problem is not our praying about the same old things, for Jesus taught us to pray with persistence for good things. Our problem is in always praying about them with the same ritualistic, heartless expressions. In my experience, the almost unfailing solution to this problem is to pray through a passage of Scripture, particularly one of the Psalms, instead of making up my prayers as I go praying in this way is simply taking the words of scripture and using them as my own words or as prompters for what i say to god now what do we confess specifically when we use the bible what are some things that we confess as we think about making our prayers more robust fortifying our prayers with the words of god as we say the same words as god as we confess well we confess truth about god and that God is our God. Those are primary confessions that must fill our prayer. When we pray the attributes of God in our prayer, that God is self-sufficient, that He is omniscient and omnipresent, that He knows all things, that He is truthful and faithful, merciful and abundant in loving kindness, and that He is our God. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. We'll look at this, uh, this prayer later. Jesus gives a model prayer. And notice what it begins with. A great statement of confession. Our Father who is in heaven. That is one of the most profound confessions you can make. It is a confession about his character. He is in heaven. He is transcendent. He is sovereign. He is ruler. But notice it is included with that is a personal possessive pronoun. Our Father. He is not just God. He is Father. And he is not just a Father. He is our Father. This is the great marrow of our theology. Romans 8 verse 15. We have been given a spirit. Not a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out this great confession: "Father, Father." Galatians four verse six says the same things. Same thing: you are sons, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying "Abba, Father." That is one of the things that that we so often skip over most of us will begin our prayers with father right you know we sometimes will say our god or or lord but one of the most common things the titles that we use is our father but that little phrase is usually the most ignored neglected aspect of all our praying our father What a great statement of confession. Because God has said he is our father. He said I will be a father to you. And the very act of praying is acknowledgement of that. And it is a far more profound theological confession than we ever realize. We confess it in other ways too. We sing songs like immortal, invisible, invisible, God only, wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. This is a prayer of confession. And you can work your way through a hymn like this on your own, that's prayer. Or you can come together with other believers and sing this and know this is a prayer of confession. This whole hymn is filled with the attributes of God and we are simply saying the same things that God has said about himself to us. We also confess truth about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, that he is the Son of God, that he is God incarnate, and that he is our Lord and Savior. Again, one of the, the second most neglected aspect of our praying and in our typical Christianese is the last part of our prayer, when we say, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Amen. You know, we, we tend to add the, those on like, bookends you know kind of the dear john and the sincerely yours of a letter and we don't necessarily even mean those things they're just stuck on there but the our father is that great statement of confession and that ending to our prayers in the name of our lord and savior jesus is also another great confession we confess him jesus to be the son of god to be god incarnate to be our lord and savior So we see these great confessions in other places, such as Matthew 16, verse 16, where Jesus says, you know, who do the people say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and what does Jesus say to him in response? This has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father. You are saying the same things that my Father says about me, that I am the Christ, and so when we make these statements, Jesus is Lord, those statements, when we sincerely mean them, do not come from the flesh. They are not given from any other source than through the revelation of God and His Word and by the movement of the Spirit within us that prompts us to say, Jesus is Lord. John 20, chapter 20 verse 28, when Thomas there sees the resurrected Jesus, who just hours before that said, unless... I put my fingers in his wounds, unless I see them with my visible eyes and go through some kind of empirical study, I won't believe that he's alive. And all it takes is a brief second of revelation. No need to even show the wounds. No need to pull aside the robe to show the spear mark. And Thomas falls down and confesses the great confession, my Lord and my God. 1 John 4 verse 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So understand that in your prayers, even those times when you don't know what to pray and you're, you're struggling, that even the simple words, Father, I know that Jesus, your Son, is the Son of God. Even that simple statement made in sincerity is exceedingly pleasing to the Father. And certainly when we sing songs like rejoice, the Lord is King, we are making these great confessions. Rejoice, the Lord is King, the Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing in triumph evermore. Jesus the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he hath purged our sins, he took his seat above. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules our earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Rejoice in glorious hope, for Christ the judge shall come and take his servants up to his eternal Home. Lift up your hearts. Lift up your hearts. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. This is a great prayer of confession of who Jesus is. We also confess truth about ourselves. We confess truth about ourselves, our sin, and our need for God. Think of Psalm 32, verse 5. Remember in that. In that great psalm that is written after David's sin with Bathsheba and all the sins that David committed afterwards because of that, you have this psalm written in commemoration of his confession. And after his, his body had begun to waste away through refru- refusing to confess, Nathan then confronts him, And finally, David confesses, and he writes about it in Psalm 32, and said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Daniel chapter 9, verse 13 to 20, going back to Daniel chapter 9, after he read from Jeremiah, and Jeremiah saying that because of the sins of Judah, Judah will be exiled, and and Daniel reads... Jeremiah 25 and he reads Jeremiah 29 about all the condemnation against Judah for her sins and therefore God would exile them for 70 years. Daniel reads that he's moved to prayer and he confesses not only these promises of God but Daniel chapter 9 is one of these great con- confessional prayers of the sin of Daniel and the people. And we read in as a summary here Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people to God, we confess our sin and our need for God. And of course, 1 John 1 verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, understand this, this isn't just coming before God and and saying, okay, I did this, 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 and this. Confession here Geo means I describe what I did in God's terms. That I don't describe them as I see them. Mistakes. I made a mistake today. No, we describe them by using the words of God to describe the sins that we committed. Finding those categories You know, it's one of the things today, you know, you hear Christians even say, so-and-so had an affair with so-and-so. The Bible doesn't use the word affair. Let's use a sacred language and say, no, they committed adultery. The sin of adultery. Or we hear people say, well, I've got an addiction to alcohol. No, it's the sin of drunkenness. Or... I looked at some bad pictures. No, it's lust. Confession means we use the words of God to describe ourselves, the sin that we have committed in our need for God. It means we say the same things that God has said about those very actions. As Jerry Wragge says, true confession is, involves seeing sin as God defines it, without mitigation or blurring of the lines, taking ownership of every nuance of offense caused by our sin and bearing the weight of it. There's another thing that we confess. We not only confess God and his attributes and his works, we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the, the Lord's Messiah, the Son we confess ourselves and our sin and our need for God. We also confess the truth about God, that it is the truth, that we receive His Word as the truth, and that we acknowledge His Word as necessary in our lives. And I, we don't have time to go through all of this, but you could look at Psalm 119. It's a prayer. And Psalm 119 is filled with confession, specifically confession about the nature of God's word. So he says in Psalm 119, verse 4, he confesses, he says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. That's a prayer of confession. You have given us your word, O God, so that we would obey it, that we would keep it, that we would love it. Psalm 119, verse 50, he confesses, the psalmist does, this is my comfort in affliction that your word has revived me. It's a prayer of confession. Verse 72 of Psalm 19. This confession, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of pieces of silver. What a great statement of confession. We confess the word of God. We confess it to be what it is, truth. We confess it to be authoritative, ultimately authoritative in our lives. We confess it to be sufficient for our lives. We confess it to be clear. We confess it to be necessary. We confess God's truth in his word, singing songs like ancient words, long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope. They give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where we roam, ancient words will guide us home. We also confess truth about God's works. About God's works. You know, this is confession that is based on the works of God revealed in Scripture and confession of God's works revealed in the world around us when we go and we see nature and we see its beauty and we confess, your hand is mighty. And you know How many grains of sand is in this entire national park? You know every nook and cranny. You've created this beautiful thing. We see it when we see the wonderful work of God and the regeneration of sinners. We confess God's work, that they are powerful, purposeful, necessary, and good. We confess, as the psalmist does, God, you are good and you do good. We confess God's works as good. Whatever he does, we confess it as good. Psalm 119, verse 90. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth and it stands. We look around us and we see that despite the chaos in the culture, we still see the sun still is up this morning and the sunset is still beautiful. We confess those things, his faithfulness. We confess it as the psalmist did in 145 verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. This is what should fill our prayers. We just look around us throughout the day. We see the beauty. We see God's truth displayed, his works manifest. And we confess those things in our prayers. And that's what prayer should be filled with. That's beautiful, Lord. That's amazing. Look at what you did here. I don't understand this, but it's, it's magnificent. All these things that we confess as in the hands of a powerful, sovereign, good, and wise God who can only do what is right. Well, as we close our time, remember those things to confess. And and I want to close this session, again, going back to Donald Whitney. He's got a nice little book called Praying the Bible, another recommended book on prayer. And he gives us six reasons to pray or to confess the Bible. In other words, just to read through the Bible and to confess it as we pray, which means it's not some kind of mystical experience. It's, it's about working through every text of Scripture, and as we work through those texts of Scripture, we confess these things as true we confess what happened as right and wise, and we confess the the messages that come out of this about the character of God and the sinfulness of man and his need for redemption. We confess those things as exactly what we need. And Donald Whitney gives us six reasons to confess the Bible in our prayers. Number one, you'll pray biblically saturated, biblically shaped prayers. You know, in 1 John 5, 14 to 15, it says if we pray according to the will of God, God will grant our requests. Well, how do we know what the will of God is? Do we try and read it in tea leaves? No. Do we try and discern it from the clouds in the sky or the lining up of planets? No, of course not. We know what the will of God is. The will that is essential for us, it's revealed in the Bible. So when we pray the Bible, we're praying the will of God. And so we'll pray these prayers that are biblically saturated and on target. Number two, you'll be freed from the boring rut of saying the same thing about the same old things in prayer. You know, we run out of things to pray for. So you just keep saying the same thing. Help me today. Help me get to work safe. Help me get home safe. And it's not that those things aren't to be in our prayers. We are. And we're going to look after lunch at a session about praying for the little things. But we get into a rut. And praying the Bible gets us out of the rut. Number three, you'll not only pray about the, the same things in fresh ways, but you'll pray about new things as well. So not only, will be, not only will praying the Bible help you pray about the same old things in fresh ways, but you'll learn about new things to pray for that you never thought of before. Number four, you'll be more focused in prayer. This word will be like that magnet that keeps your attention focused. It keeps your attention where it needs to be. The mind wanders. We're creatures who are greatly affected by other things outside of ourselves. So when we say, my attention right here is is in the text here, that text will keep our focus affected the right way. Number five you'll become more God-centered in prayer. When you listen to him first and then confess his words back to you, you cannot help but become more theocentric in how you pray. And then number six, you'll find that your prayers become more like a real conversation with the real person. And you know this from your own dialogues with others. You know that person who, when you speak to him or to her, when they speak back, it's as if they've never listened to a word you said. But when you listen first and then you respond to what has been spoken, you'll find yourself in a dialogue. God has spoken and we respond. God has spoken and we respond. That is the essential ingredient for a robust, healthy prayer life. Amen.